Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to another chapter in 1 Corinthians. If you know how I preach and you remember that we were in 1 Corinthians 9 last week, then you are probably already turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. But if not, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. This week, we're going to wrap up this section of this question that the Corinthians have asked Paul. So quick recap as you're getting your Bible together and all. The Corinthians have asked Paul in a letter, hey, is it okay for us to buy meat in the marketplace or go to a restaurant and eat meat that we know the animal was sacrificed in the temple of Apollo the night before. We know that that animal was sacrificed as part of the worship service to Apollo. It was a sacrifice to Apollo. Can we eat the meat? And the way they write it, they're saying sort of like, this is okay, isn't it? Like we know now, idols are nothing. It's just a cow. It's fine for us to eat this meat, right? And Paul comes back to him and says, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It is fine for you to eat that meat. But he goes on to say, and this is what he has spun out all of chapter eight, all of chapter nine, and now into chapter 10. But he says, that's not really the question to ask. The question as a believer you wanna ask is not, oh, can I do this? Is it legal? Is it okay? Is it not forbidden? The question you wanna ask is, is this loving? Will this further the ministry of the church? Could this harm a brother or sister? If it could harm a brother or sister, Paul says, don't do it. And he goes on in chapter nine then to explain how he does that. He's like, you know, this is exactly what I do when I'm doing evangelism, when I'm traveling around. He says, I limit my freedom. I'm asking you to limit your freedom for the sake of brothers and sisters in the church. I do the same thing for the the sake of the people who don't know Christ. So he says, as an example, hey, I know I'm not under the Jewish dietary laws, but when I'm with Jews, I obey the Jewish dietary laws. I don't want there to be anything that could make it hard for them to come to Christ. And so he tells them, hey, this is what you need to do. And remember, he says to them, it's not just like, oh, do this because it's a good idea. Do this because it's loving. Also, do this because you're going to get rewarded. Jesus said, anything you give up for him, you will get back in spades a hundred times over. Paul says, I absolutely expect to be rewarded. When I give something up for Jesus and the gospel, Jesus will make it up to me. So Paul ends chapter nine saying, hey, think of it as if you were an athlete because athletes have to exercise tremendous self-discipline, self-denial. They have to give up all sorts of things that they could do, they could have for what? to win and get a prize, to to be rewarded. And Paul says, that's how we ought to think about our lives. We're we're like athletes, we're in training to get a prize, to be rewarded. Not just a a laurel wreath that's gonna be dead in a couple days, but a prize, a reward, Paul says, that will last forever. And remember, I told you, he ends with this really interesting statement, because he says, you know, so I, I buff up my body, I make it my slave. And you expect him to say something like, so I'll win the prize, so I'll be rewarded. And instead he says, so I am not disqualified. So we know what Paul's gonna say next. He's signaling to us what the next section is gonna be. It's gonna be not just about, oh, there's all these good things in our freedom and all, all these good reasons for us to give things up, but that there are dangers in freedom as well. So follow along with me. We're gonna read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're gonna finish up Paul's argument to the Corinthians. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And we do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do those who eat the sacrifices partic- do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Oh, do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whenever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul starts out in these first 13 verses, giving us a warning about ourselves. Now, up until now, the warning has always been about others. Be careful in exercising your freedom, Paul says, that you don't put a stumbling block in front of other Christians. Be careful in exercising your freedom, Paul says, that you don't make it hard. You don't block non-Christians from coming and hearing about Christ. But this time he says to us, be careful, because in our freedom, we can also harm ourselves. And so he talks from this example back in Exodus, when the children of Israel come out of Egypt and go on to Canaan, to the promised land. And he tells these stories about them, how they saw the cloud, they saw the sea. The the cloud is that pillar of cloud, which turned into a pillar of fire at night, that is the Lord's physical presence. When he speaks of the sea, he's talking about the Red Sea, that actually 
parted and they walked through on dry land and then God closed it back up again. So Pharaoh couldn't follow him. He talks about the, the food and the drink. You know, they're in the desert and they're, they're, they're nomads. They can't grow anything. So how do they eat? Well, when they got up in the morning, there was grain, there was food on the ground everywhere. They didn't have to plant it. They didn't have to harvest it. They didn't do anything. They just got up in the morning and there it was. And when, when there was no water in the oasis, then water just came out of a rock. Remember, there's a couple million people and water just came gushing out of a rock, enough water for everyone. I mean, think about it. These folks who came out of Egypt, they saw God's physical presence in that cloud of, that, that pillar of cloud and fire. They saw God's power. He parts the Red Sea. They saw God's provision from the food. They just, God fed them miraculously. When they complained about not having meat, God miraculously brought in just thousands upon thousands of quail that came and landed in their camp that they could kill and eat. They have seen all these amazing things. Wouldn't you love that? Like, don't you wish that you had that sometime in life, right? You, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're having one of those, ah, gosh, is this really true? Is, is there really a God? Have I just made all this up? Well, open the flap of your tent. Look at the giant pillar of fire. Like, no, no, there's a God. Yeah, okay, go back to sleep. Wouldn't you love to have God's presence? The power of God is provision for all these things. I mean, these people must have been God's most devoted followers, right? Yeah, if you've read the story, you know, no, they weren't at all. And that's what Paul says, right? God was not pleased with them. They died there in the wilderness. So in 6 through 10, Paul goes through and he lists all their rebellions. See, they rebelled against God and died. That happened over and over and over again. They rebelled and some of them died. They rebelled, some of them died. They rebelled, some of them died. He's just quoting these stories in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers where the people rebel against God and then they die. And he doesn't tell us why they rebelled, but the author of Hebrews does. The author of Hebrews goes through these same things and says, why? With what they saw, with what they heard, with what they experienced, why did they rebel against God? And he says, it's because they didn't combine what they had with faith. They didn't believe him. I mean, they saw it, they experienced it, but they didn't believe it. They didn't trust him. And since they didn't trust God, then they rebelled against him. They lived the lives their own way. And so they died over and over again in these rebellions. And Paul says a couple times, these are examples for us. These were written down for us. And he gets to verse 12, and I'm reading from the New International um, Version, and it begins, so, your translation, if you're reading a different one, may be, therefore, or on account of these things, or something like that. But it's this really strong word in Paul's language. It's this word that's sort of like if I was to say, okay, everybody, eyes up here, listen, this is important, right? He's like, look, this is really important. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul says, be careful in all, remember the context is freedom. The things we, we can do, but we need to think about other things, other people. Paul says, you know, in that freedom, you can crash and burn. God didn't make those people who came out of Egypt believe. He didn't force them to worship him and they didn't. And so they rebelled and died. Paul says, be careful. Your freedom is a two-edged sword. We all, if you have children, you know that. Would I let my six-year-old cross the street to go to a friend's house? No, absolutely not. I would walk him across, holding on to him. Would I let my 12-year-old cross the street to go to a friend's house? Yeah, I probably would. 
Now, is there any chance that six-year-old is going to get hurt crossing the street? Nope, zero, absolutely none, because I'm holding on to them. I am stronger than them. They are not darting across that street. They are not even falling down walking across the street. I am taking complete control of them. There's no way they can get hurt. Could that 12-year-old get hurt crossing the street? Yeah, absolutely. If he uses his freedom poorly, foolishly. I think Paul is warning them that freedom is a two-edged sword. You need to be careful. And he'll make an example of that for them in just a minute. So hang on to that thought. But first, he gives this really encouraging little word at the end. And it's verse 13, and you may have memorized it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has occurred to you except what is common to man. But remember, he's doing it in the context of freedom and how you can misuse freedom. But I do think the way he writes it is pretty open-ended, and I think it probably is a promise, period. Anytime you're tempted, Paul says, God will provide a way out. He will absolutely provide you a way out. But notice what he says at the end. He will provide you a way out so that you can endure it. God does not promise to take you out of the situation. He doesn't promise that you'll conquer the temptation and not have it anymore, defeat it. He promises that you will endure it. But that promise is on offer, brothers and sisters, that if you want a way out, if you want to endure whatever you are being tempted to do, whether it's you're tempted to misuse your freedom, tempted because somebody comes in with something, whatever it is, that offer is out there from God. He will provide you what you need to endure it. And then we go into verse 14, and Paul's taking what he just said about these folks. So he used this example of people from Israel and how their freedom, what God allowed them, it ended up destroying them because they didn't believe him, so they didn't obey him. They rebelled and then they died. He applies that to them. Like, here's a specific example of how you could do this, Paul says. And it's, again, about the food sacrificed to idols. Because I think what he's saying is, okay, we all know it's just a cow. Like, Wednesday morning, I can go to the market and buy the cow. It doesn't matter that the cow was dedicated to Apollo. It's just a cow. The, 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 the temple, the idols, they're nothing. Well, if the cow's just a cow and it doesn't matter that it was dedicated to Apollo, then I can buy it Wednesday morning, but can't I also go to the temple of Apollo Tuesday night? And I can have steak on Tuesday and on Wednesday. I'm not an Apollo worshiper. I'm just there for the food. And Paul says to them, no, your freedom doesn't extend that far. Your freedom doesn't extend to participating with what is essentially worship that is demonic. Yes, the next day, you're welcome to buy the cow. You're welcome to go to a restaurant and eat the cow. You are not allowed to participate in idol worship. Idolatry is forbidden. The scriptures delineate what is allowed and what is forbidden. And so Paul says, hey, if the scriptures forbid it, no, you don't have freedom to do that. I don't care, you know, oh, well, it's just a cow on Wednesday morning. Wasn't it just a cow on Tuesday night? What's the big deal? The big deal is on Tuesday night, you would be worshiping an idol. It's not about the cow. It's about the worship service. Paul says, no, absolutely not. You absolutely cannot do that. And isn't it interesting? Look at what he says in verses, talking in verses 16 and 17 about the cup and the loaf. You know, he's talking about this. He's talking about communion. And we could spend a lot of time spinning in there, and I've thought about it, and maybe we'll preach on it at some point. But Paul seems to be saying something about how 
our taking communion together is part of our unity. This is because we, we share the loaf, then we're one. And so I think that's another reason why you'll hear us say to you, if you can come back to church, please do. Like, if there's any way you can come back to church, please do. Now, I know some of you can't. Like, I get it. Some of you, God has constrained. He's constrained you by circumstances. He can constrained you by illness, whatever it is. He has constrained you, and so you can't come worship with us in person. Then I'm so glad you're watching and blessings on you. But if you could come, like if what you think to yourself is, ah, oh, you know, I don't really sing on Sunday mornings. I listen to people sing and I listen to Jeff and then I go and I get the elements. But I mean, it's just me. I eat the bread, I take the cup, like... I can do all that at home. There's really no difference for me being at home or being in church. Paul seems to think there's a difference. Paul seems to think it matters that we do this together. So if you can, let me urge you to start coming back to church. Starting this Sunday, we're back at 1030. We're back to one service. We've got more chairs in the sanctuary. Like We are getting back to the way things were before COVID. If you can come back, let me encourage you to come back so that you can participate in this. You know, Paul will use a body analogy later, and so we'll, we'll get to it in a couple chapters. Um, but it's a really good analogy because we are all parts of the body, Paul, Paul says. Now, what happens if you take a part of your body off and set it aside? What happens if I take this finger off and set it aside? The finger dies. What happens if I take a kidney out and set it aside? The kidney dies. Now, my body doesn't die, but I am missing a finger. I, I, don't, I can still live with one kidney, but it affects me. Like, we are one body, Paul says. This, taking communion together, this is part of what unites us. And if you are separated from the body for too long, then you will die, and the body will miss you. We need you. You, you need us. If it's possible for you to come back, please do. Okay, enough of the slight diversion off on the, uh, the other sermon about communion and unity and coming to church. Back to our regularly scheduled sermon on 1 Corinthians 10. So Paul gave us this general warning and he used examples from Israel's history. Now he's given this specific warning about how your freedom can get you in trouble. It's like, don't think that, yep, sure, you're able to eat the cow on Wednesday morning, therefore you should be able to go to Apollo's temple and eat the cow on Tuesday night. No, because... Idol worship is forbidden in scripture. You can't do that. And now, finally, in 23 and on down, Paul is going to wrap this up. He's going to take all the things that he said, and he's going to give us sort of his, his practical advice. Like, what are we looking at here? How should you treat these things? And I am really glad that he does that. And I'll, I'll show you why. He starts out quoting them. If you remember from verse six, I have the right to do anything. He's like, yeah, but remember, that's not the question we should be asking. Like, we know what he's saying now. When he's saying not everything is beneficial, right? He's talking about beneficial for the body. He's talking about beneficial for people coming to Christ. Yep, you have the freedom Ah, there's a lot of times you probably shouldn't use it, Paul has told us. Then, listen, in verses 25 through, 27, 25 through 27, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For, 
the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Now, I am so glad that he circled back around to this. Remember, we talked about this. Ancient writers, they tend to do this kind of thing. He circled back around to this and given us a little more information. Because up until now, Paul has given specific examples from his life but he's only talked generally about us. If you remember a few weeks ago, back in chapter eight, he talks about, can you eat the cow? Sure, absolutely. Can you go to the restaurant and order the steak? Absolutely, but, but Paul says, what if someone from the other side, you know, there's this division in the church. One group says, oh, sure, we can eat that. Another group says, no, you can't. It's sacrificed to an idol, absolutely not. What if somebody from this side sees you? Paul says, won't he be emboldened to do this? And I confessed to you a few weeks ago, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, absolutely, that's what I want to have happen. I want him to be emboldened. I'm right, he's wrong. I want him to know that I'm right so I can keep doing what I'm doing. And Paul just, you know, says, no, absolutely not. That is not the way of Christ. That is not loving. But I think if Paul left it there, it might paralyze me. You know, just to think constantly, could this harm someone? Could this harm someone? What if someone sees me? You know, if, I think probably if I went to the market to buy meat, I'd probably feel like I had to wear a disguise or something. So no one would know it was me because I'm constantly wondering, well, what if someone from the church comes by? What if someone who thinks this is wrong comes by? Like, I think if Paul had just left it in that general hypothetical, you know, what if someone comes by and sees it? I think I would be paralyzed. I so appreciate that he comes back around finally to give this very specific advice about, okay, what should you do? Can you eat food sacrificed to idols? Can you buy the food in the market? Absolutely, Paul says. Eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. Because as he said before, you're right. Idols are nothing. It's just a cow. And here he even adds one more reason. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Like that cow, it belongs to God. It doesn't matter that some guy dedicated it to Apollo. That doesn't change the fact that everything on the earth belongs to God. That is God's cow and you are welcome to eat it. What if I want to go to the restaurant? I get some friends together. I go to the restaurant. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Absolutely. I can absolutely go to that restaurant with people. I don't need to feel like, oh my gosh, you know, is, could anyone see this? Could anyone be harmed by this? No, you don't have to think like that, Paul says. But, verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. If you know it's an issue, not hypothetically, maybe it could be an issue if something happened. If you know it's an issue with someone, if someone says it to you, if you are in that spot, then, Paul says, then you must defer. You must give up your rights for the sake of this other person. Now, notice in verses 29 and 30, Paul is emphatic that you don't have to agree with them. They're like, I'm not talking about my conscience, I'm talking about his conscience, right? You don't have to agree. When someone says to you, oh, that's been sacrificed to an idol, and you say, oh, okay, right? And I I won't order that. But that's not saying you agree with them. You're not saying something about, oh, well, absolutely, you're, you're right. They're not. Paul's already said that. Theologically, that is not correct. You are deferring to them out of love. You are trying to keep it 
Keep there from being a problem in your relationship. Keep them from stumbling, from them not advancing forward, becoming more like Christ. But I mean, Paul is just adamant in these two verses. I'm not agreeing with the guy about this. It's not my conscience that has an issue. It's not my problem. It's his problem. But that's why I defer to them. Because it's his problem, I defer to him. And so then Paul wraps it up. Remember, we started in in chapter eight, on down now here to the end of chapter 10. And he's wrapping all that up with whatever you do, when you eat, when you drink, we do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, Jew, Greek, the church of God. I try and please everyone in every way. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that many can be saved. I would summarize what Paul's saying in his wrap up is don't make it hard on people. Don't make it hard on people to be Christians. Don't make it hard on people to be your brothers and sisters. Don't make it hard on non-Christians to come to Jesus. Like That's how I would say Paul is wrapping it up. But let's wrap it up for ourselves in, in, in our circumstances. Like What would we say? They're asking the question, can I do this? And I think that's a question we ask all the time. I think that's a question we ask for pretty much all of the decisions we make. Can I do this? And Paul's words to them are Paul's words to us. Again, we don't have the issue of meat sacrificed to idols, but the principles are the same. The question we ask isn't, can I? Is it permitted? You know, is it within the scripture? Scripture forbids these things, but it leaves tons of stuff in the middle that you are perfectly allowed to do. Does this fall in that category? That's not the only question we ask. It's not that, oh, scripture doesn't forbid it, so it's okay. We also need to ask the question of, is it loving. And if it's not loving, if it doesn't further the gospel, then we shouldn't do it. And we should feel free to do things that maybe we know other Christians don't agree with or, or are issues, but, but we feel free to do them, but not, not when we know it's a problem, not when they're there, not when they say something. That Paul is telling us that we need to think more about the consequences of what we decide, both for the church and for the non-Christian world. And I told you last week, and I'll say it again this week, I don't think that way, and I suspect you don't either. But if I do think that way, that really could change some decisions I make. Imagine that you are offered a promotion at work. It's more money, it's a nicer office, you like the job, it's more prestige. Can you do it? Well, absolutely, right? It, it, it's within what scripture allows. Scripture doesn't forbid you to take a promotion. I mean, I'm sure there's jobs you can't have. If they're promoting you to be a, a mafia hitman or something, you probably have to say no. But short of that, short of anything scripture forbids, absolutely, you could take the promotion. But should you? Is it loving? Like, what if you have really good ministry going on where you are? What if you're seeing people come to Christ in your office? What if God is using you there? Should you take the promotion? Maybe not, I think Paul would say. Now, obviously, you have to talk to God about that. It's a principle. You have to take this principle and apply it to your situations. But I can see good reasons why you might say no to that promotion, to stay where you are because God has fruitful ministry for you there. Imagine, you know, some house that, that you love, it's your perfect dream house, comes up on the market. Should you buy it? Could you buy it? Well, if you have the money, absolutely. Scripture doesn't forbid you buying a bigger house. But is it loving? Like, what if that house 
pulls you away from your church. You used to be involved in these things in church, and now it's going to take you away, and you know you're not going to be involved in those things anymore. I mean, you'll come down for Sunday, but, but that's it. Maybe not. Again, it's a principle. I can't say, yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you should. No, you shouldn't. You have to decide that along with the Holy Spirit, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will explain that to you, but we need to be thinking that way. We need to add that in, and remember, Their question is about lunch. It's not some high theological issue. It's about what do you eat? What do you have for lunch? And Paul says, ask yourself if what you're gonna have for lunch is loving. Now, I suspect as we do that, that 99% of our decisions are gonna be the same. But I also suspect that 1% will be different and those those will probably be important. That will be a significant 1%. Paul has told us through all this that we need to ask other questions. We need to ask if this will help or harm the church. We need to ask if this will help or harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to ask if this will help or harm people trying to come to Jesus. Those, those are the important questions. If yes, this would harm the church, yes, this would harm a brother and sister in Christ, yes, this would keep someone from coming to Jesus, we probably shouldn't do that. Now, I'm going to add an aside here, and this is not something Paul talks about, but I think it fits in well and could be helpful. So all that we've talked about up until now, word of God, right out of 1 Corinthians. This is word of Jeff for you. This is where fasting can be so helpful because when you fast, one of the things you're doing is you're practicing this principle. You are practicing denying yourself something that you have every right to. Do the Corinthians have the right to eat, go to the restaurant, order that steak? Yes, absolutely. Should they always do that? No, Paul says, there's times you shouldn't. If somebody's like, oh, don't do that, that's been sacrificed to an idol, then don't do that, Paul says. When you fast, you take something that is God's good gift to us, food, that you have every right to have, and you deny yourself. You know, for one meal, for a day, for a week, whatever it is, you learn and you practice denying yourself, something that you absolutely could have. Because if you fasted or if you decide to try this out, um, you will notice that your body grumbles terribly and your mind starts spinning all sorts of reasons why you should eat and this is dumb and why are you bothering? And like all these voices are gonna rise up inside you because you do want that food. In fasting, you're practicing saying no to those voices because here's what's gonna happen. In the moment, when the moment comes that you need to deny yourself, I think if you have practiced that, you are far more likely to do it. So imagine we all go out to eat together to one of these restaurants. Let's put ourselves in the Corinthians place. We all go to one of these restaurants attached to the temple the next day, okay? And there's a couple other guys from my church there, and there's some guys from work, and the waitress is going around, right? And the the guy from my church, he orders the vegetable plate. And then the waitress comes to me, and I'm like, oh, hey, I'll have the steak, right? And she writes it down and she's walking on to the next guy and the guy next to me from my church, he like grabs me by the arm. He says, Jeff, Jeff, you you can't do that. Like that cow was dedicated to Apollo last night. They had a festival. That cow belongs to Apollo. You can't eat it. Now in that moment, (laughs) you are going to be very tempted to use your knowledge as a club to overwhelm your brother who doesn't know as much as you do. I am going to be very tempted to do exactly what Paul says not to do, to embolden him 
to join me in what he thinks is wrong. I'm going to be tempted to argue with him so I can get what I want. Because remember, Paul said I'm right. We are allowed to eat that cow. He's wrong when he says that cow belongs to Apollo. And yet, what Paul has told us over and over again is, don't do that. If he grabs you and says, oh, that cow was sacrificed to Apollo, you can't eat that. Then say, oh, thank you, excuse me, waitress, I need to change my order, I'll have the vegetable plate. Don't take that moment to feel like you need to convince your brother otherwise. All you are doing is convincing him to do something he thinks is wrong. You're convincing him to sin against his own conscience. And Paul has said, Jesus does not like that, and there will be consequences if we do that. That's not the moment to argue. That is the moment to say, oh, I'll change my order. But if you've practiced that, if you've practiced self-denial, if you've practiced fasting, and you know all those voices that rise up in you that say, hey, I have every right to eat lunch today. Oh, I should eat lunch today. You know, when you fast, voices are going to rise up that say, if you don't eat lunch today, you're going to die. And you have to learn to say to that voice, no, I'm not. Go away. Because when you order the steak and the guy grabs you and says, oh, you can't do that. That, that cow belongs to Apollo. You, you, can't, you can't eat that, right? There are voices that are going to rise up in you that say, you're wrong and I'm going to do whatever I want. And you need to learn to say to those voices, no, go away, not now. Fasting practices what Paul tells us to do. So in the moment when it happens, we're more prepared. We're ready because those moments are going to come. Again, I said probably, I think, if I'm trying to envision including this question, is it loving in all the decisions I make? I, don't, I think 99% of my decisions will be exactly the same. But 1% probably will be different. And that 1% will be important. And I need to be ready. I need to be ready for those moments. Fasting is a way to practice so you're ready. So let me pray for us as we bring Paul's argument about freedom and are we allowed to do these things and what are the questions we really should be asking. And let me pray for us that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us because you're not, I'm pretty confident you're not gonna run in the question of whether you can eat a cow that's been sacrificed to Apollo. I just don't see that as an issue for us, um, but it absolutely will happen. There absolutely will be issues that divide your church, that divide brothers and sisters in Christ, where, where you know that this is fine, but other people don't. There will definitely be places where you have to defer to others. So pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Again, as we've said every week, you are our model in this because you gave up the Godhead. You gave up your very life. You gave up even having any sort of good death. You have modeled this for us. Thank you. Jesus, we want to do this, but you know us. You know what we're like inside. You know those voices that rise up in us when, when we have to deny ourselves. You know those voices that rise up in us when we know we should defer to our brother or sister, when we know that we should sacrifice our rights for the greater good of your body or for the greater good of people coming to know you. Lord, you know how hard that is for us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in us, that you would be transforming us. If that means we need to fast and practice, then help us to do that. If that means we, we need to keep our eyes and ears open more, we, we need to be more aware and alert. Will you remind us, Holy Spirit, in the moments when we are making these decisions, big and small, to also ask, is this loving? 
Does this fit not only the question of, is it permitted, but the question of, is it loving? Is it loving to my brothers and sisters? Is it loving to those outside the church? Jesus, you know how quickly we forget. You know how fickle we are. I pray for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for everyone listening to this, that you will speak to us, that your spirit will be at work in us, that we can do exactly what Paul says. We can deny ourselves. We can give up our rights so that our brothers and sisters aren't hindered. They continue to grow in you. And so others, many others, come to know you. We pray this in your name, Jesus, always. Amen.